Well, you know, it's not even guesswork. It's a proven fact that you will get more miles from your chain by oiling it regularly. Here's what you got to look at. The MotoBreeze chain oiler. It's got no moving parts, got no electrical parts. It runs off of air pressure and it's got vacuum connections that take the oil down and deposit it onto a felt pad that goes directly onto your chain. An ounce of oil gets you a thousand miles or 1600 kilometers. MotoBreeze.com. There's two eyes in there. MotoBreeze.com. Tiffany Coates rides an old motorcycle. She has old furniture. She has old appliances. She even wears old clothes. Seriously, her words, not mine. The reason is, what's important to her, to Tiffany, is travel. And she usually travels by motorcycle, but not always. She spends as little time working as it takes to fuel her lifestyle of travel and adventure, but she's not your normal traveler. She does very little research. She doesn't use a GPS. She prefers to camp even when there's cheap accommodations. And oddly for a traveler, she isn't motivated as much by experiencing foreign cultures as she is by experiencing beautiful geography. This is a woman that sold her hair to a wig maker before departing on her first trip so she could buy some tools that she wanted. Most recently, Tiffany did a month trip in Borneo, which is known for its rugged landscape, culture, and wildlife, including orangutans and clouded leopards. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us because that's what we have for today. It's made in the USA, it has a lifetime warranty, and it will save your butt over and over again, both on the road and off the road for years and keep on working. It's the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, made by Best Rest Products. They're also distributors for Googletech filters in North America. Visit them at cyclepump.com. Cyclepump.com. Max BMW Motorcycles has four locations. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online ready to ship to your door. They do it every day, and they've been helping out adventure riders like us since 2002. MAXBMW.com. That's MAXBMW.com. Don't chance losing your gear because your straps loosened up or failed. That's horrible. Use what works for hardcore adventure motorcyclists, and that's Green Chili ADV. Green Chili ADV makes super tough straps and luggage systems and has so many variations you can strap literally anything to your bike. They even have a system so that you can use dry bags as panniers. Made in the U.S., GreenChiliADV.com. GreenChiliADV.com. Sam Manning. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Pat The island of Borneo is the largest island in the world. It's tropical, meaning it's hot and humid and covered in jungle, and it's shared by three countries, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Brunei. Tiffany Coates is from the UK, but spends most of her time wandering the globe, a lot of it by motorcycle. She just returned from a motorcycle trip to Borneo, and well, this is how it went. Okay, my name's Tiffany Coates. I'm from Land's End in England, most of the time. And I'm a motorcycle traveler. And when I'm not doing that, I am working as a youth worker with disadvantaged youth here in England. Tiffany, great to get you back on the show. Thank you. It's great to be back. You're riding most of the time. You're riding a 97 BMW 
R80GS. This is one, This that was your first bike, wasn't it? Actually, she's a 92. I got her secondhand in 97. Oh. So the bike was already five years old, had about 23,000 miles on it, and it cost me 3,000 pounds. You think you got your money's worth? <laughs> I think so, because apparently if I put it on the market today, it would be £3,000 still. So Yeah, it's kind of bizarre. Those R80s, they seem to be sought after nowadays. They've, they've sort of come into their own as far as um, a, a nostalgia motorcycle. Yes, I think it's a bit of both. So there's the nostalgia people who want that bit of history and they like the look of those motorbikes, although, to be honest, they're not the prettiest of bikes. But also some people who say if they want to travel in more remote places, having an airhead motorbike that's easy to fix. Um, to be honest, I think probably any mechanic just about could fix Thelma. That's the name of my bike. Um, because it is so simple with minimal electronics, um, obviously no computer diagnosis. So yeah, an ideal travel bike for some people, not for others. Why are you still riding that old bike? Just for that reason? <laughs> oh, excuse me, that old bike. <laughs> well, I didn't mean to sound, you know, like that I was putting down your old bike and you should have something new, but it's just a, that's a long time. I mean, you know, when you hang on to something that's that old, you have to work at it because, you know, parts have to be, I would think that you're, you're having a little bit more difficulty with parts, but also the bike gets worn. I mean, you know, there's things that just wear out. Yeah, so you sort of replace the bits that get worn out. Um, there's probably 222,000 miles on my bike now. Miles. Um, which is miles, yep. So that's quite a lot. And um, so why haven't I got another bike? Well, it still runs. And in fact, it's the only vehicle I've ever owned. So I never had a small bike. I've never owned a car, although I can drive. Um yeah, I've just got a motorbike and it works and it gets me from A to B or sometimes A all the way to Z. And that's all, as far as I'm concerned, that's all I need. I'm not sure about this sort of upgrading, getting a newer model, doing this, doing that. I'm like, it still works, so it suits me. So if you have a, an old computer and it still works, old couch, it still works, old toaster still works, you don't bother replacing those? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I'm just looking around, yes. It's all old stuff in my house, including a lot of my clothes. <laughs> Are you, a, would you, would you consider yourself, and I know you're sort of hesitant to say you're a motorcyclist, but would you consider yourself a motorcycle rider first or traveler first? Oh, definitely traveler first. Without yeah. a doubt. You, you, traveling comes, the bike is sort of a means to an ends for you. Yes. And it adds an another dimension, an incredible dimension. And it's sometimes difficult to put into words, but I've always been a traveler anyway. My dad was in the army. We, I grew up moving around myself, my brothers and sisters were all born in different places. And, um, so I grew up traveling. And then when I left home, I continued to travel. And then one day started doing travel with a motorbike and then never looked back from that. For, because of the convenience of traveling by a motorcycle? Oh, believe me, sometimes it can be very inconvenient <laughs> when you've had a breakdown and it's bad weather and you're stuck by the road somewhere. It's inconvenient. Um, it's funny because the word convenience has never really entered my head about taking my motorbike traveling. It's, um, I think the spirit of adventure, the freedom and the independence you can have with a bike the ability to go anywhere that you want. You can follow footpaths, little mountain trails, um, go, you know, go up pavements or sidewalks, depending on what country you're in. Um, that ability to go absolutely anywhere and being self, for me, being self-contained as well on the bike or self-sufficient, carrying the cooking gear, the camping gear. I've always got a couple of days food at least with me and the knowledge I'll just go wherever I want to. Yeah, because you're a real camper, aren't you? You're, you're not much of a city person. Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm not a city person at all, no. I live in a very rural part of England. I'm looking out on fields full of cows as we speak. The sun is sort of pretty low in the sky in the west there. And um, yeah, I 
the city life doesn't come naturally to me. So, so your choice is, uh, you know, it's not, it's not a financial choice necessarily when you're traveling to camp somewhere. It's, it's love of camping. Oh, definitely. Definitely. It's the love of the great outdoors. Um, the, the not such great love for hot, dusty cities when you're trying to find cheap accommodation. And the way I travel, it will always be um, accommodation at the very budget end because if you're traveling in a frugal way, then you can travel for longer. So then that extends your journey. It creates more possibilities. So it would always be very cheap accommodation that I'm looking for. I know some people would just flinch and walk straight out you know, if they looked at some of the places I've stayed. Um, so yeah, staying in my tent somewhere is much more preferable. And it's my little home. I get my tent set up and everything feels like, yep, that's all in place. Uh, it's the little home that goes with me anywhere. And the the beauty of just waking up, there could be a sunrise on the horizon and that horizon, it, it could be snow-topped mountains, it could be lakes, it could be a desert and just that sheer beauty looking out on it and enjoying that start to the day, which you don't really get if you're in a dorm full of snoring, sweaty people. <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful picture. <laughs> yeah. Your old bike. No, let me let me rephrase that. Your classic bike, sort hey, of like it. Sort of points to um, your style of travel as well, because you don't like GPSs. You're kind of a leadite, really, aren't you? <laughs> um, I suppose so. I mean, I don't try to be like that. It's just the way I am. Um, I've never. I've never done any of my own travels with a GPS. I've never owned a GPS. But when I'm working as a tour guide, I have to use a GPS for work because that's one of the conditions and it comes on the bike and I'm supposed to follow certain routes then. Um, I like the um, sense of mm, sense of anything could happen if you're not following a GPS. Those interactions with people, the following roads that you think, actually, I think I have gone wrong, so I'm going to have to turn around and go back again, or the, I'll just keep following it. I've got my compass as well, so I know if I keep going north eventually, I will rejoin the road that I should be on. It's got its drawbacks, sure, and I think it's mainly in the cities that it would make life a lot easier having a GPS, so pinpointing those little places that you're trying to get to, the Packers hostel down the little alleyway, for example. But even when I have used GPS, and it's, I've still ended up going around in circles at times. I, I can't imagine that um, you're trying to find your way in a city somewhere, and you make you know a couple of wrong turns, and it gets frustrating. You know, you mentioned the heat and the dust and the and the people and the traffic Ooh. and all that, where you couldn't, you know, you wouldn't say to yourself, "Oh, like I should just use a GPS." That this is just too annoying. There must be something very valuable in some of those side adventures you find by not using it to sort of make up for all those? Oh, definitely. And I, I think everyone else who is in the same no GPS camp would feel the same way that you're having more conversations, more dialogues with people, finding out about the local life and giving people the chance to find out more about me, such as who is this stranger? Oh my God, it's a woman on a motorbike and explaining who I am, sometimes for the hundredth time that day, but that's fine. That's part of the travel is explaining who I am and why I'm such an alien being in their world. So creating those conversations, it certainly triggers a lot of those when you're trying to find a place and sometimes trying to describe the place you're looking for because in many parts of the world they're not so aware of foreigners traveling through or what sort of accommodation they would be sleeping in so it can be a bit of a needle in a haystack job yeah, but with with gps's becoming so popular or so common rather on phones and things like that i'm surprised you're not running into it more where locals will look at you as if you know why wouldn't you use a gps sort of thing do you, do you get that have you seen some of the places I travel well, in? I guess it depends on where you're traveling. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on where you're traveling, um, of course. I mean, I know you yeah, just came yeah. back from Borneo, um, so. Yeah, so places, you know, don't always have a lot of electricity and stuff as well. 
they wouldn't necessarily think of GPS. But I will say increasingly people everywhere do seem to have mobile phones. So they'll whip out their mobile phone and they'll say, oh, I can find it for you on here. And so I'll, yeah, you know, I'll take directions off anyone. And I just want to say for the record as well, I'm not actually anti-GPS. I'm just too stingy to buy one. <laughs> well, they're, they're, they're so inexpensive now. I mean, geez, you can, you can get them, you know, very, very cheap. But you, you put all your money to travel. I, I assume that's what you're doing. Well, that's it. Yes. Yep. When you're looking for places to go travel, you're saying, you know, if you see some of the places I travel, do you look for out of the way places or how, how do you choose where you're going next? Like, in other words, this, this trip that you just did, you came back from Borneo not, not long ago. How did you choose to go there? What made you go there? Oh, right. Okay, then. So Borneo is a place that I've wanted to go to for a long time. I think anyone who's traveled through Southeast Asia, so countries such as Thailand, Cambodia, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, you're sort of going around the edges of Borneo. And it's a huge island in the South China Sea. It's the third largest island in the world. And it was always sort of, oh, I'd love to go over there. But when you're on a long transcontinental journey, which the first time I went past there, I was because I was heading on down to Australia and didn't have much money left. So I didn't have the time and the money to go over to Borneo while I was passing through. So it's always been there at the back of my mind in the same way that's how Madagascar was after traveling through Africa, always knowing that there's this amazing island offshore that I hadn't actually gone to. And so I got around to, let's think, around Christmas this year, I'd been due to do um, a different trip entirely that got cancelled because the other person was unable to make it. And I thought, Oh, I've got some free time. Uh, I've got the time booked off work and what shall I do? It's not often I suddenly have unexpected free time. I actually had two months available. So that was a real golden opportunity. My brother lives in Malaysia currently, and I actually haven't been to visit him. I don't seem to have been back to Southeast Asia for quite a long time. So I thought, great, I'll go out to Malaysia, go visit my brother and then have a little think about things. And it was definitely one of those light bulb moments as I pictured myself flying into Kuala Lumpur, the capital of Malaysia. I suddenly thought, oh, Borneo's just offshore. Great. This is going to be a trip to Borneo. So I contacted my brother. I said, hey, good news. I've got some free time. I'm going to come over and visit you. And then I might just pop over to Borneo And he said, oh, just backtrack a bit. You mean you're going to Borneo and I'm a convenient stopover on the way. (laughs) (laughs) You can read that (laughs) He knows me well enough. (laughs) So I said, oh, yeah, that that could actually be it. So the focus is Borneo, but uh, it's always great to catch up with siblings. So it was a combination. Went over, had a few days with him, and then had about six weeks or so on, on Borneo Island itself. So this time I thought, right, my focus is Borneo. So I'll fly to Malaysia, catch up with my brother. I also went and caught up with Anita Yusof. She's the first Muslim woman who's traveled around the world by motorbike. And she's from Malaysia. And so I've caught up with her in a number of different countries now, actually. And she came and stayed with me here in the UK when she passed through the UK on her trip. So I went and visited her for a couple of days. We hung out, we rode motorbikes together. And then I flew over to Borneo. I'd arranged to rent a bike um, and it was a Honda 250, which was great fun. And then I just took off. I had no particular plan for what to see in Borneo. I thought, right, let's see how it um, unfolds as I go around. I knew I wanted to see orangutans. I I made a little list in my journal of what I might want to see while I'm there and then attempted to tick those off. But that list was sort of culled from looking at guidebooks and chatting to my brother and a couple of other people I know who have been there. And then just, yeah, pick up the bike, put the giant loop luggage on it and take off around Borneo. So how much actual research are you putting in before you go on a trip like this? Oh, gosh, yes. Me and research, we... You're not big I'm on not it. I'm not saying my research, I have to say. 
I'm much more flying by the seat of your pants kind of person. So going somewhere and then just make it up as I go along. I will, I do flick through guidebooks and stuff. I know that's, oh, am I sounding a bit Luddite again? Well, it's all People going together. I mean, you are making, it's all online. Yeah, or on you're, you're, you're connecting it for sure. I mean, you've got the old bike, you've got the no GPS and, and now the, the lack of planning. It definitely paints a certain picture. <laughs> I'll have you know I have got a digital camera though oh <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah so I'll look through some guidebooks if there's anyone I know who's been over there um so at this point I think Anita was the only person I knew who'd been over there and ridden a motorbike there so I talked to Anita about places to go road conditions that kind of thing but what I've found over the years as well is places that I find interesting other people look at me in disbelief in the fact of, really, you went there and you liked it? Or equally, some places that people find fascinating, I'm still puzzled to this day just what they saw in the place. So I'll take advice and I'll read what other people have done and then I'll go to places and make up my own mind which bits I like and don't like and which ones to stay longer in, which is the nice thing about not having a schedule or a set schedule is that ability to linger in different places, rush through the ones that you aren't enjoying, picking roads that sometimes you'll want a road that gets you somewhere a little bit faster or sometimes it will be more of a meandering route to take and then just enjoy the scenery, the people in the villages that I'm passing through. What, what kind of things interest you that wouldn't, or that don't interest the masses? Ah, okay. It's, I turn that question around, actually. I'm not very good on culture. Hmm. So I'm not so good. Oh, my goodness. When I can't you say you're not so good, you mean you're not, you're not all that interested in it? I, I know. Oh, I'm going to get so <laughs> shot down in flames. Um. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not so good on things like going to cathedrals and museums and cultural places of interest. Some of them I really enjoy. Uh, for example, Tikal in the Guatemalan jungle. I love Tikal. But it's more the physical beauty that I like somewhere. So it will be a mountain range or a desert, beautiful beaches, uh, again, that brings us back to city or country. I'm very much countryside person. So it's, and also the places that are more of a contrast to where I live. So it's green rolling hills, um, cliffs and ocean where I live, although you can never have too much ocean, to be honest. And it's those physical things that I'm looking for when I'm traveling that just open my eyes to something new each day. Hmm. Well, I don't think that's all that odd. That's my style as well. I tend to prefer uh, the natural side of things rather than um, the tourist attractions or the, the man-made things. That's certainly something I'm attracted to, but it is, it's not the norm. I mean, most people are interested in travel for a lot of it's to do with culture. I mean, there's a lot of it. But we were just talking about this on Raw. Um, we got a, a message from somebody after one of the episodes we did. We talked about traveling and, and the the group was saying, slow down, you know, and experience the people and the culture. And, and this guy wrote in yeah. and said, hey, I don't care about any of that. I'm out for the ride. Oh, definitely. There's a lot of people who are out there for the ride. And for them, it's the riding itself that's the focus. I, I'm very much, although I like the solitude of being somewhere remote, I am a people person. I'm gregarious. I like to chat doesn't matter if I don't share much of a common language with the people around me, just that opportunity to smile, share food or drinks with people. That's something I always really appreciate on my travels. So it's so that cultural side of things, being part of a community, seeing how people are living their lives. And one of the best ways to do that is if there's someone whom I can talk to a bit more, perhaps they speak good English or we can get by on one of the languages that I can speak a bit of, then going around a market and having someone who can translate my questions, like what exactly is in that funny bag that's moving on the table? And um, This happened in a river village in Borneo and my guide said, oh, I know what that is. And when I say guide, it was just someone who got introduced to me as being 
he's the best English speaker in the village. <laughs> so he took it upon himself to show me around. And this small bag that was moving on the table, it contained five large frogs tied together by their ankles. And they were just about to be sold. And he said, oh, those are very juicy ones. They're going to go for a good price. So they're being sold for food, still alive. And they were sold, it was about a pound each. You, you had to, the person buying them, apparently you had to buy all five together. And they went for about a pound each. So five quid altogether. And they happily went off with this moving bag. So it's, it's those little snapshots of local life, which is very different to my own life. And then also looking at the way people get around, whether they're on bicycles, on boats, crammed into the back of pickup trucks, just observing and just enjoying the difference, really. Well, I'm curious more about Borneo as far as uh, a motorcyclist destination. You rented a motorcycle there. Obviously, there, there's there's rental companies. I know it's a very large island, and there's lots of population on it, and there's cities. And, um, how difficult was it for you to find a motorcycle rental company? Well, these days with the internet, it's pretty pretty much impossible to not find someone that will rent out motorbikes. You use the so, internet? <laughs> yes, I did. Um, but however, in this case, it was word of mouth, good old word of mouth. I spoke to Anita. She's got a few friends and contacts over on Borneo, and it was a friend of hers who rented the motorbike to me. So he doesn't usually, he, he's not a, it's not a business. It's one of his personal bikes. And so I, yeah, I got to borrow it and you know, give, he made some money and I got a great bike to ride around on. And someone who was quite happy that I made was a little bit flexible about my return date. Hmm. What do you do about um, uh, motorcycle insurance then if you're using someone else's bike? There was motorcycle insurance with the, that came with the bike. So I had the paperwork with it from him. So going through police checkpoints and that kind of thing. And the, the um, whoops, it, it was like a letter or a document saying that I had his permission to you know, take the motorbike and ride around Borneo, basically. And any trouble with that? No, no, none, none whatsoever. You present the letter when you're stopped? You, you present your paperwork and they look at it and they, fine, off you go? My role is don't offer any documents till they absolutely insist and then give them minimal documents. So in the end, I never actually had to show them the letter. I just showed them the registration document for the motorbike, which was in a man's name, not in my own name, but they were perfectly satisfied with that. And then off you go. Yeah. We're going to take a two-minute break to tell you about a couple of things here, but stay with us because when we come back, Tiffany is going to tell us about shopping for a wedding ring to get herself across a border. You got to hear this. Summer is here, at least for North America, so you should be trip planning, either a long trip or a short trip. It's time to get out there and explore. I'm going to give you a tip. British Columbia, Canada has so much amazing riding and incredible places to visit. I know I'm biased, of course, because this is where I am right now. But there's a town in British Columbia that you need to add to your visit list. It's in southern British Columbia called Beaverdell. Beaverdell is a motorcyclist destination because it's the home of the Red Rock Garage. And the Red Rock Garage itself has become known as a motorcycle destination. Why? Because... It's a small coffee shop with a motorcycle addiction. The Red Rock Garage is known for not only having the best coffee and the cleanest washrooms around, but they also have a B&B and a campground for traveling motorcyclists. It's a great place to base camp from and explore some of the amazing roads and trails in the area. And they're motorcyclists, obviously. That's why they're here on Adventure Rider Radio. The website is redrockgarage.ca. That CA means Canada, right? It's a Canadian website. Redrockgarage.ca. Make sure when you're talking to them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. The other day I was making a turnaround in an area where it's starting to get real dry now because summer's here and we've had some real dry weather. Uh, a rock rolled up underneath the, the front tire, very tight turn, lots of deep sand and gravel. And uh, it skidded the front tire over, took out the front end, and the bike went down. When I stood it up, I see the pegs jammed in from all the sand and gravel. I give it a hoof, it flops back down. I get back on the bike and go. 
And I was thinking, you know, I wouldn't even remember that that was an IMS peg if I didn't have them as a sponsor for the show because they just do their job. I never worry about them. From one ride to the next, I count on those foot pegs. I count on what they do for me. They keep my feet in place. They are extremely tough. All the features of a great product, and a great product, I think, is one you bolt on and forget about. You don't even worry about it. You don't have to mess with it because it does what it's supposed to do. Have a look at what I'm talking about. IMSproducts.com is the website. They have a full line of adventure motorcycle pegs right from the big platforms for those who like a really large platform right on down to the rally pegs, the smaller ones uh, with sharper teeth on them. IMSproducts.com. Make sure you tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio when you're talking to them. You ended up having to to leave the bike at one point, though. That's right, yes. Now, I always knew this was going to be a gamble. So the island of Borneo is actually three countries uh, have, a, have a place, have a territory there. So there's the two states of Malaysia, Sabah and Sarawak. Then Indonesia has quite a large portion of the island. In fact, that's the majority of the landmass is Indonesian, and that's the state of Kalimantan. And then there's the small kingdom of Brunei, an oil-rich nation on the northeast, sorry, northwest coast of Borneo. And one of my plans, which I did actually carry out, was I definitely wanted to go over to Kalimantan. Now, I know that's the hardest area to travel in out of the whole island, and I rode up to the border knowing that, that it would be problematic and I probably wouldn't be able to get the motorbike across. But I did my best. I First of all, I stopped in a nearby town and bought the cheapest wedding ring I could find. Managed to get a wedding ring for £2. So I wore this fake wedding ring, ready with my story. Why are you doing that? Oh, my goodness. You get away with so much if you claim to be married and that your husband is somewhere else. So this is my plan. I'll roll up to the border and I'll fill in the paperwork or whatever. And then if they start saying, no, you can't bring that motorbike in, I'll start the ultimate plan, crying. It does seem to work quite well. I can hear you sniggering there. <laughs> it's funny um, because there's I'll, so many advantages, I think, for, for a woman traveling alone. <laughs> there really is. And that's got to be one of them because a guy's not going to pull that off. Well, exactly. So got to make the most of it. There's not that many advantages at times. So this is one I can get away with. So claiming to have a husband who's on the other side of the border and my only way to reach where he is is on the motorbike and I've got to get the motorbike to him. So I had the wedding ring ready in advance and I got to the border. But actually the customs guys were so nice there. So I managed to get the paperwork done that I was stamped in. And I got the stamp in my passport and personal customs was cleared. And I thought to myself, I think I've done this. The cars are all now being waved through. And I'd entered the customs area with the cars. And I got back to my bike, was about to get on. And I'd also x-rayed all my, I'd x-rayed my bags, had those x-rayed. Then the customs guys came up to me and said, oh, we, we do need to see your paperwork. And I said, oh, yes, yes. Showed them my paperwork. They were chatting. It seemed okay. And I thought, oh, yes, I've done it. And then they started asking for some more paperwork. And I said, well, this is everything. I had actually given them the letter that gave me permission as well. And interestingly, they didn't have any questions about why I was riding a motorbike that didn't even belong to me. But they eventually managed to explain that I needed a carnet de passage. Mm. So I'm, I'm aware that you probably discuss these quite a lot on your radio shows. So it's the passport for a motorbike. And there's not many countries, or for any vehicle, to be honest, there's not many countries in the world that insist on them. And it turns out that Indonesia insists on a carnet for motorbikes, but not for other vehicles. They won't take cash? and, and or, or do they offer that to you? No. Mm. Oh, no, no. So bearing in mind it was a locally registered motorbike and there were cars coming through with exactly the same local registration on those mo on their vehicles and so they literally had to sort of spell it out in black and white to me because I'm saying well these cars are coming through they've got the same paperwork as me 
they're going through and I can't. And I've, I actually haven't had it confirmed by anyone else, but they said, but motorbikes have to have a carnet. And to be honest, there was no other motorbikes going through that border. And in common with a lot of Southeast Asian countries, motorbikes are a fairly common way of getting around. So this was rare, but here was a major road junction and no motorbikes going through. So basically without a carnet, they would not or could not let me through. So I, I thought I'll go for the charming smile before I do the tears <laughs> because they'd been so nice from the start. And so they said, okay, we'll try, we'll try. We'll go and call up the head office. We'll talk to um, the guy in the main, in the capital city on the island for Kalimantan. And so they went off and 15 minutes later, they came back very sorrowful and said, really sorry, there is no way we're allowed to let any motorbikes through without the carnet de passage. So they'd done their best for me and I couldn't ask for more than that. So then we had the little sticky problem of what am I going to do now? So I asked if I could just leave the motorbike parked with them because I said, obviously, I've got to get to town because my husband is there. And they wouldn't let me leave the motorbike parked on their side of the border. So I had to ride back across no man's land and to the Malaysian side where they looked a bit surprised to see me coming back so soon. And I said, it's all right. You don't need to stamp me back in. I'm not actually going anywhere. I talked to the police guys and the customs guys and somehow managed to convince them that I could leave the motorbike with them. Uh, I'm now realizing that the owner of the motorbike might be hearing this story for the first time. <laughs> so I said, well, look, I've parked the motorbike here. It's next to the gents' toilets. Um, the customs It's visible from the customs post, and it's within the customs compound. And so I said, yeah, I'm leaving it here. I'll be back next week sometime. And then took the luggage off, uh, flagged down a lift with a car heading back across no man's land towards Indonesia and went back over to Indonesia and said, Hi, guys, I'm here. There's no motorbike. It's just me and my luggage. And they waved me on through. So I then took what they call a shared taxi. So there was about five of us crammed in. They kept wanting me to sit in the middle seat, but I refused because I was the first passenger in there. In fact, I wanted to sit in the front, but no way were they letting a woman sit in the front. And so I had a shared taxi that took me to the first main town. And that's where I then stopped and set to hiring a motorbike did you have any idea that you could at that point like you know when you're when you're abandoning your bike and leaving with your luggage did you know you could get a bike i googled it and it looked like i could but that's never a guarantee and i'd asked people i know and they said they didn't really know anyone in that part of kalimantan and so that was a, yeah so i thought doesn't matter i'll get there and i'll ask people who live there so I got there, I found a cheap hostel. In fact, I had a private room. It wasn't much bigger than a cupboard, but it did have a small fan, no air conditioning, obviously. Um, I had a small fan and there was a shared bathroom and toilet down the corridor. And yep, I think it was, it was a squat toilet. So one of the holes in the ground, but it was all clean white porcelain. And instead of a shower, what they call a Mandy, M-A-N-D-I. And that's, a big, it can be like a big barrel of water in the corner, but more like more like an overgrown bath that's upright. It's tiled, full of water. This one was about four feet high and it's full of cold water. And there's a plastic like scoop or saucepan that then I'd stand in there and scoop the water over me to wash with. So that's the equivalent of a shower out there. I think it helps keep the costs down as well for accommodation if there's no real shower. So I went there and then I talked to the people who ran the hostel about renting a motorbike. They made some phone calls and came back to me very proud and said, yes, there's a motorbike you can hire. The guy is going to bring it here. And I said, okay, well, can I see a picture of it perhaps? And he showed me a picture of a scooter. And I said, no, no, that's the wrong kind. I don't want a scooter type motorbike. I want a real motorbike. And tried to explain the difference between a step through scooter and a real motorbike. And he finally saw the light. He said, oh, you want one where the petrol is in front of you and not underneath you. And I said, OK, fair enough. That is a good way to describe it. Yes, that's right. He made quite a lot more phone calls and then came back to me and said, no, 
There's none of those available. There are only scooters. I, I think in retrospect that because it was a holiday weekend, that maybe there are real motorbikes available and they're just rented out and gone because people use them to reach their hometowns. It's a four-day weekend for Chinese New Year. So people were maybe using real motorbikes to transport themselves to far-off places to visit family for the holiday. But it looked like all I was getting was a scooter. So I, I sighed a bit and I thought, you know what? I'm actually going to embrace this new challenge. I don't think I've ever ridden a scooter before. And so I said, okay, go ahead. It was nice and cheap, so that is on the plus side. So they brought around the scooter and I looked at it. I chuckled to myself. It was a Honda though, so that was good news. And I think it was a one, yeah, 125. And I sat on it and it almost toppled over. I just not used to balancing something like that. My feet were right next to each other at the front. And I got a bit worried about the balance issue, but I thought, no, I'm sure I can work this out. And um, I went up and down the street. It was a very quiet street. Went up and down the street, got the balance. Now the next step was the luggage. So I went and got my giant loop bag. And sure enough, that's it's the horseshoe-shaped one. I slung that on the back of the scooter. The passers-by were just looking on with complete astonishment put the luggage on. Obviously, the tank bag isn't going to go on because there's no tank bag as such, but it worked. I had had my luggage on. I had my map, no tank bag to put the map into, so I just had it in my pocket. And then off I set up the coastline of that part of Borneo. And it became a scooter adventure. But do you ever think that, that like as we, we talked about, you know, the fact that you don't like to do too much planning or you're just not into it for whatever reason, do you ever do something like that and then think, maybe if I planned it more, I could have found the actual motorcycle and got what I wanted as far as that goes? Possibly, but I asked everyone I could think of and they didn't know of any. And I had tried emailing and calling some of them in advance, but wasn't getting any response. The other issue was I don't like to schedule myself as such. Um, there's times on my travels when it's a necessary evil, usually when it's to do with visas, and border crossings, closing and that kind of thing. Some visas are very strict on dates. So I didn't want to say, okay, I'm going to hire a motorbike and I will be in this town on this date to pick it up. I had no idea how long it was going to take me to get around Borneo and down to these particular places there. And it was a bit, so, yeah, perhaps I could have persevered with that and spent longer on the phone and the internet. But actually, I just rocked into town and just took what was available. And so for me, that's part of the adventure and what I need to be doing rather than being at the top end of the island and thinking, oh, my goodness, I've still got a thousand kilometers to get to that border crossing to then cross and get to where I need to pick up the motorbike on this set date. You get your bags on your scooter and you're off and running, you're heading off. Describe what you're riding through. Describe what, what Borneo looks like. Jungle. Lots and lots of jungle. It's really green. Flying in. So it was great because I flew in from KL on the mainland of Malaysia. And I always like doing that, getting a feel for a place. As the plane came over the island, there's... It's got a blue, blue sea around it. Lots of offshore islands as well, which it's always a delight to be exploring smaller islands. And then the green of the jungle and the lushness of rainforest as well, closer to the water's edge. And a couple of big mountains. There's Mount Kinabalu, which is, I was told, is the tallest mountain between the Himalayas and Papua. And then... Yeah, so it's not very built up. There are roads running through the jungle areas. And sadly, as a lot of people are aware, um, there's a lot of palm oil plantations. Mm. So the trees and the jungle are being torn down so that palm oil plantations can be built. And then it's a cash crop, which isn't great because it um, 
it's international, well, multinational companies that are making the money from it. There's not much benefit to the locals and they're, they're losing their local land. It's being swallowed up and the animals and the environment are suffering. It's disastrous. It really is. I did find one really good fact. Apparently, one hectare of rainforest in Kalimantan has more tree species than in all of the US and Canada combined. Wow. So we are talking a tropical island in the South China Sea in one hectare has more tree species than the whole of the US and Canada combined, which I've ridden a lot of the US and a lot of Canada. And I think of all the different landscapes and geographical features, not to mention the temperature differences, the climate changes from the edge of the Arctic Ocean right down to the Gulf of Mexico. And yet there's still more trees in one hectare on this little island. So more different trees in on this one hectare. Wow. And they're so, hacking it down like crazy for, um, for farming. That's it. Yeah. So profit driven for palm oil. Uh, it's an easy crop. It grows the the palm, the palm nut trees grow very, very well in Borneo and Southeast Asia. I know it's an issue in other areas as well. It seems particularly devastating in Borneo because up till now it's relatively untouched. It's that forgotten part of Southeast Asia, this massive island covered in trees, which has evolved, well, animals have evolved there, which are quite unlike other parts of the world. And, but now that whole landscape that environment is being chopped down and destroyed to make way for all these palm nut trees so which is why we should be avoiding food with palm oil in it which is really common that's it it's not until you start looking at the labels and you realize how much palm oil there is in so many of the foods that we eat especially obviously the processed foods it's a cheap ingredient, it's easy to transport, and it's gradually creeping into our diets and our foods all over the world. Yeah, yeah, I know. I've, I've read about it before. It's horrible. Well, what, what else did you see there? I mean, there's a lot of caves there, isn't there? There are some phenomenal cave systems. There's the, the largest cave in the world is there. It's in the Mulu National Park. And I have to say, they have a good network of national parks, certainly on the Malaysian side. I, I spent the the majority of my time on the Malaysian side of Borneo and the Mulu cave or cave system has the largest cave in the world. It's called the deer cave and it's something like three times the height of St. Paul's cathedral, a vast, vast cavern with apparently 3 million bats living in it. So having gone in, it's only possible to go in with a guide leading, um, keeping everyone safe, making sure they're not getting lost. So I went in with a guide and a few other people. The stench from the bat droppings was something else entirely. I hmm. Luckily, I had my buff with me around my neck and I was having to breathe through that. The fumes from the bat droppings, the guano was almost overpowering, eye-watering, and very nasty indeed. But I went right into the cave. We explored around. We had torches. There's stalagmites, stalactites. And then when we came out, the sun was starting to set. And then there's the amazing bat parade where these three million bats start emerging from the cave and they're twittering as they're flying out and... They come out gradually at first, and then as we're watching, they became a, almost like a solid ribbon of them. But the bat hawks are in wait for them. So the bat hawks are flying around, hoping to catch any unwary bats. So as this ribbon of bats comes out from the cave, they immediately start flying in a spiral pattern. So if you can just imagine like this this ribbon coming out and spiraling its way across the sky over the jungle. And that's the bats coming out. And that's their way of confusing the bat hawks and preventing themselves being turned into dinner for some hawk fledglings that night. They're coming out and 
the most amazing thing. Everyone's just silent watching it. And they must be at least 300 feet above us in the sky. And we could hear the wings of the bats. It made a rustling sort of noise as they flew past. And it's possible to sit there for about an hour or so as they're emerging from the cave and taking off over the jungle in search of insects just as the sun is setting. Wow, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. That's almost something out of a horror film for some people You know, who get very freaked out about bats. I, I don't quite understand the fear of bats, but some people get very, very scared about it. Yeah, we're a long way from the bats, but I must admit that's, it's something that I don't really understand why people are so scared about bats. I think horror films have a lot to answer mm -hmm. for. Yeah. And they have, they have leopards there. <laughs> Did you manage to see a leopard? Oh, I didn't manage to see one, no. They, it's very rare that they're sighted. It was, once I started looking into exactly what it is possible to see in Borneo, I started thinking, I think it sounds like Africa because there are great apes, there's orangutans there, there are pygmy elephants, there are big cats, the leopards in the jungle, and there's even rhinos as well. So the more, so the rhinos and the leopards I didn't get to see, the pygmy elephants, I was so close to seeing them, I could hear them in the jungle. So elephants were trumpeting in the distance on one of the more remote roads I was riding along, I, I suddenly caught the scent of dung. Now, elephant dung can, sat, can smell similar to cow dung in developing countries. And I didn't really think anything of it. As I was riding along, I could smell this dung. And then I realized, oh, yep, there's piles of dung on the road. And I suddenly thought, wait a minute. Pulled up on the bike, looked at the dung, and it's coming up to almost the height of my knee in places. So these very, yeah, I'm not really sure how to describe elephant turds on the radio for you all. <laughs> Imagine sort of something like football shape and size. Um, so, yeah, lots of fresh dung on the road itself. And I could see in the jungle at the side a sort of elephant-shaped hole where they'd push their way through the undergrowth and obviously came along the road for some distance and then went down to one of the rivers and I could see their footprints in the mud at the river. And then they'd crossed the river and disappeared off through the jungle again. I could see where they trampled through the undergrowth and disappeared into the jungle on the other side. And the freshness, I, yep, I touched the dung to see if it was still warm. Sadly, it wasn't. So they'd been gone for a little while there. But that, And that was as close as I got to seeing them. I think with more time and effort, um, I would have been able to trek into the jungle to one of the wilderness camps and hopefully seen them for real. But even so, it was just a thrill knowing they're there in the jungle as I'm riding through and having heard them, seen their droppings and seen traces of them. I felt happy with that. Yes, yeah, it's, it's amazing to, to think that just a, a random uh, crossing, you know, rather than having to go to a specific spot to see them. That, that's great. So when you're riding there, you're just on your way to your next location. And, and is that planned where you're going? So I have my map of Borneo. So as, you know, I do my route planning. I do it on the hoof, but I'll do a little bit in advance. And I must admit, I had quite a busy life going on right up until I actually flew into Borneo itself. So this time I did my route planning on the flight on the way into Borneo. I knew I wanted to explore Sabah, Sarawak. Brunei and go into Kalimantan for a bit. And obviously the starting point is going to be where am I picking the motorbike from? So I flew into KK as the town is called. It's Kota Kinabalu. It's the main city in the north of the island. And then I worked out a rough route that did a circular, yeah, took a kind of circular route around that part of the island. I went right up to the northernmost tip and then worked out which places and things I wanted to see, whether it was orangutan, go and see them in a sanctuary. There were turtles to dive with offshore. And then I was told about Sipadan Island, which is a pristine dive location off, off the island of Borneo. And it's tricky to get to. Uh, permits, are, special permits are required it's a, considered a bit of a terrorist hotspot. So, in fact, 
a lot of the governments around the world tell their citizens not to go there, that it's unsafe, but that doesn't always stop me. I talked to quite a few divers, including my brother, and they just said it's so worth it. So, yeah, I knew I wanted to go to the islands. Um, I also had a couple of other people to catch up with on my way around. So Anita had put me in touch with some other female motorcycle riders. So that was fascinating, meeting them along the way. So I put together a route like that. I'm never fond of backtracking on myself. So just trying to work out a route that I could scoop up everything I wanted to see and do along the way. And then working out where the roads might be that join them up. And are you camping? I know you mentioned accommodations, but I know you love to camp. Are you camping at all? Okay. I did carry my tent and it was so hot. I actually did stay in accommodation nearly all the time. I had a couple of nights where I was camping out. The heat and the humidity are pretty intense out there. And considering the day before I flew out to Malaysia, I was actually snowboarding in Transylvania. So it was a pretty intense temperature change for me <laughs> from the sub-zero. I work in centigrade, so it's like minus nine, minus 10 in that bit of Transylvania. And then all of a sudden I was in 37 degree heat and with the huge amounts of humidity that they have in Southeast Asia. So it took me a while getting used to the heat. Um, so staying somewhere where there was at least a fan was sort of pretty crucial to begin with. And then, yeah, it was fine, though, camping out occasionally. Um, but the rest of the time staying in the cheap accommodation. Uh, well, how cheap is the accommodation? How cheap is everything? Oh. Okay, so... It's possible to do it in a luxurious way and spend several hundred dollars a day, or it's possible to do it my way. My cheapest accommodation was 16 ringgit a night. So there's about five ringgit to a pound. So that's about three pound 20 was, um, that was a bed in a dorm. And in fact, there were only three other people in the dorm. So that wasn't too bad. So it was anything from about 16 ringgit a night up to, I think I even splashed out and went up to 70 ringgit, but that was a private room in a hotel. Um, I didn't do that very often, but that was the occasional splurge. Otherwise it was hostels and it's always great meeting the people in these hostels, especially somewhere like Borneo where it's people who are keen to get off the beaten track a bit more and to explore a place so, yeah, I always enjoy that. And there's a, yeah, a, enough hostels around, or if not, it's cheap Chinese hotels, which are a whole travel log until themselves. The noise, the people in them, the funny notices about not being allowed to bring in durian fruit because they will stink out the whole hotel and uh, the threadbare towels that are provided, and they're usually located sort of right next to markets, so it'll be very loud outside from early in the morning. But, yeah, they're still fun. What What is the UK dollar now to the US? I think you'll find we're still pounds sterling and not dollars. <laughs> <laughs> um, the UK, what, what is the UK pound to the US dollar? Uh, do you know what? I have no idea at oh. the moment. I mean, you don't even want to know about pound sterling at the moment with the whole issue of Brexit that keeps looming and then fading and looming and will it ever end? Um, our currency has not been faring well. I know when Brexit was first announced, I think we lost nearly a quarter off the value against the dollar. Um I bet somebody's shouting at their computer now, sort of, hey, it's uh, 70 cents. <laughs> I No, I don't know. What do you have um, for tips for somebody considering to go to Borneo? If someone's considering going to Borneo, I'd say definitely do it. I can't think of any reason why it would be a disappointment or somewhere that they haven't enjoyed. The tips as far as going there is go and explore there's plenty of great places to see and it's the small villages. The I parked up the bike and went up river at one point 
on local boats to have a look. I actually went to a village that my dad had been stationed in for a while when he was a young serviceman in the early 70s. We actually lived as a family in Malaysia for a while um, in the early 70s. My brother was born there and my dad at times was stationed over in Borneo. So I, I went to a village that he'd been stationed in and it was quite an emotional moment actually uh, looking around and I took lots of photos I talked to people and quite a few of the people remembered when the British army soldiers were there it was kind of like a peacekeeping tour of duty they were doing between Indonesia and Malaysia and I um yeah, I got to see something that my dad would have experienced as well. And that was the place where the the bag with the jumping frogs in it on the table and mm. being served palm wine for breakfast in the market because I was told this is the local tipple and I wasn't riding that day. So I said, well, I'll just try a little bit. And I know, again, this isn't for the faint-hearted. They had a bucket of cold water that they just rinsed this glass in and poured me a shot of palm wine to drink so this and it's made from the the uh, palm nut trees so there's a little side bonus I suppose to all that palm oil that someone does brew up some wine and beer from it so doing those yeah so making the most of those little encounters and seeing where the lifestyles are slowly evolving, talking to people. Um, a guy that was leading me on a trek through the jungle, I talked to him about his family. There's lots of different tribes over there. And um, I asked about the headhunting. It's something that Borneo is famous for. And he looked a bit sheepish and he says, no, 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 we don't do headhunting. And then he said, well, my uncle does tell tales about my grandfather and his headhunting exploits. And apparently there are some heads hidden away in some of the huts in his village. And he, I said, oh, have you got a blowpipe as well? And he said he has a not very good blowpipe, but he said his dad has a very good blowpipe. And he showed me the trees where they scrape the poison from the bark. And that's what they use to kill the animals in the jungle. Um, I'm vegetarian, so I maybe don't agree with killing animals in jungle, but this is a lifestyle that's been going on for centuries and centuries. So making the most of those little opportunities and seeing the great features that are available in Borneo, like I said, the islands for diving, the mountains to climb, the jungles, the caves, the beaches, everything. So headhunting, yeah, we didn't we didn't touch on that. Do you know what the deal is with the headhunting? I mean, did they go and what is it? You look for the ideal head. It's it's done as a type of victory thing, a spoils of war effect. Mm. So, uh, as I said, there's quite a few different tribes on Borneo, and in centuries past, they have fought each other for territory um, to get more women for one tribe from another. And they'll fight to the death. They're very warlike, very ferocious. And then those that have been killed in battle, their heads are removed and they are shrunk. Um, I'm not sure if they smoke them or something, but anyway, they shrink the heads and then they have them hung up in their huts as a sort of boastful way of showing off that, look how many heads I've got in my hut. And And the heads have more significance if it's the head of say a tribal chief it has more significance they haven't done it for a very long time although during the second world war when the japanese were occupying borneo there was an underground movement led by some brits and the brits were actively encouraging the tribesmen to continue their head hunting as a way of trying to discourage the japanese troops from venturing into the jungles and just trying to curb any yeah any further action by the japanese if they knew that they would have their they would be decapitated and their heads shrunk for a bit of home decor in somebody's hut in the jungle <laughs> wow that's certainly a way to deter someone from visiting isn't it just, yes. Wow, that's incredible. Where, where do you go next, Tiffany? Oh, ooh. 
well, I need to stop and earn a bit of money again now. So I'm back here in the UK doing the youth work. I'm also, I've also got some more tours lined up this year. So I'm due to go back to Ladakh in Northern India and lead a tour there. And I am going to be back in South America, leading a tour around Chile, Southern Peru and parts of Bolivia, including obviously the infamous Road of Death. And um, my personal travels, I'm not sure what's on the horizon for that, actually. There's a couple of places I've got in mind, but I sometimes feel like it's jinxing things if I start talking about them too far ahead of time. So I think I might keep those ones up my sleeve. (laughs) Tiffany, it was great to connect with you again. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you very much. It's been wonderful to chat to you and talk about motorbike travel. That was Tiffany Coates from her, well, sort of home, at least home between travels. We have some photos uh, of Tiffany and and her adventure in our show notes for this episode at AdventureRiderRadio.com. The episode title is Destination Borneo, A Rider Experience. Tiffany Coates, I'm sure if you just search for Borneo, you'll find it. Tiffany's website is Tiffany'sTravels.co.uk. And as always, that link is in our show notes. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. And Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did when we put it together. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you. Thank you very much for being a part of it. Hey, maybe Borneo is going to be your next adventure. If it is, let us know. We'd love to hear about it. We'd love to hear your experience with it. We love getting the emails from listeners like yourself about um, things that the show has done for you and the way it's changed things. If you have any ideas for uh, upcoming topics, things like that, drop us a line. The website, adventureriderradio.com. We've got a contact form on there. Um, You can also get us through Facebook. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. Otherwise, I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. See you next week. Oh, wait, 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 wait. One more thing before we go here. We would love it if you would become a show supporter. It's built on a model of advertising and show support to make the whole thing work. And we need more support. So drop by our website and also click on the support button and have a look at the different options we have. We'd love it if you'd consider the Patreon one, which is the, the monthly setup where you're you're helping contribute to the show. Any, any amount does it. We just need your support. So consider that. Thanks very much. This is Jim Hyde with Rawhide Adventures, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. 